Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jane Bartlett and thanks for Chris for Great Voices. Today, support for Palestinian prisoners on hunger strike. I'll be speaking with Yusuf Arimwe, who is a member of the Palestine Remembered Program here on 3CR. Ban Ki-moon and the Tamil Dictator with Dr Brian Singaratna. Second part of history of the Russian Revolution with Chris, who you've just been listening to for the last two hours. Banning white asbestos at the Geneva Conference. I'll be speaking with Kate Lee, the head of AFIDA, the Trade Union Overseas Aid Agency. The Gene Ethics Network segment with Bob Phelps, who's the director, and a fight back against Trump in the US with Nancy Raiko Cato, who's a, an activist there with the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and you know what he's been doing. A week, Jay, listener, when yesterday morning much excitement as I prepared to acknowledge at least some decency in a train killer who just loves a bit of train killing. It was a bitter, hard-fought battle. I heard Her Most Gracious Majesties, when you see him, you see her representative in True Blue Aussie, big train killer Peter Corsgraves drone, and thought, good on you, Pete, at least you're acknowledging May Day and the massive working-class struggles that have gone on and still go on. But sadly, no. Train killer and lover of train killing Corsgraves was excitedly droning on about yet another train killer battle, yet another slaughter, the things he loves. No mention of the battles fought and slaughter suffered by working people, battles against and slaughtered by the very protectors of the great true blue Aussie values we must all cherish on whose behalf those train killer slaughters were conducted, whose interests cause graves of the politicians also celebrating train killing represent. And we discovered we have a Minister for Education whose concern for the subject obviously emanates from his failure to pass basic grammar, which might explain two things. First, his failure in grammar is obvious as he announced he would provide tertiary institutions with an efficiency dividend. Now, a dividend, as we all know, all of us except the Minister Simon Berring them know, a dividend is a distribution of money, as in share dividends for those who profit from the labour of those who labour, a win in this case created by efficiency. Thus, I'm sure we all thought, oh, goody, more money for universities, for education. But again, no. Simon announced the good news, an efficiency dividend. How much, how much we kept waiting. Then he declared the efficiency dividend was a cut in funding, slashing money for education, the dividend going into the public purse, presumably for more important national priorities like lots and lots of submarines and lots and lots of US of the UN of the US of the world train killer aircraft whose costs keep soaring higher than the aircraft are not soaring. Simon's dividend, a cut. Poor Simon, grade one grammar, totally wasted. 
And the second thing it might explain, well, Paul Simon is so distressed at his failure and being a politician, therefore, knowing he has no faults, he knows the fault lies with the education system itself. So why waste taxpayers' money propping up a failure, even if it is propping up Simon? Simon also announced students would have to pay more to compensate for the efficiency dividend and pay it back as soon as they get a rip-off underpaid job at McDonald's or 7-Eleven, which is a further reflection of the education system's failures because when it comes to wages, it knows 7-Eleven adds up to about 12. But then again, universities can be thankful they're getting anything. After all, the vice-chancellors agreed when the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in those dark ages turned education from education into business, universities transmogrifying into commercial enterprises. And we must thank the vice-chancellors for going all the way with the government and not doing anything as stupid as resisting the changes and suggesting education has something to do with education. Back to train killing, what a week as we celebrated the honing of true blue Aussie values. Trained killing is great day, yet, and I'm going to say something that may sound slightly unpatriotic of this great national day, yet I can't help feeling the glorious dead may well have preferred to have kicked on as the not-so-glorious alive. Now, we know those fleeing the invaders have the audacity to expect the invaders to have some sympathy for them, some misplaced sense of entitlement, as if we have something to do with their predicament. For goodness sake, we didn't choose to live where they chose to live, and thus they emerge as no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people. Surely it's not expecting too much to ask for the proper papers and ask where the queue is before you leave. Bloody irresponsible, that's what it is. But we now know it's even worse. We talked last week about what qualifications were required to become the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, and concluded on the tautological, a roaring idiot, a monumental moron, and unbelievably stupid. Well, apologies to the current qualifier, Peter Duffer. Sorry, Pete, for this week he showed he really is a man of acute intelligence, because he's the only person in the whole world who knows these are Illegals are even more illegal. They're all pedophiles to boot. Okay, okay, those on the spot say that's wrong, but what would they know? Pete knows. And I'm sure Pete also knows they, the illegals, the pedophiles, are the sort of people who would resort to a whopping lie if they felt cornered by some minor considerations like facts. And speaking of giant minds in government, when it comes to the economy, to the greatest little economic order, we've known for a long time the crippling burden on the economy, these welfare pledges, the unemployed single mums and a few single dads and people with disabilities and old bastards who selfishly live on and on and on, and equally selfish exploiters, many the same abusers of the public purse, 
who think a free health system means a free health system or free education means free education, although thankfully real free state education disappeared long ago. Abusers who keep demanding public funds be wasted on public housing or public transport. Bludges all, but now we know the reality is even worse than we knew, worse than we imagined. These people are the cause of bad debt in this country. The reason poor big economic gurus scuttled them more less than can't sleep nights worrying about how to cut the debt, slash government spending so all those bludges can be better off. Not creating bad debt, which could be producing wealth as Good debt. Good debt provided to the great corporate construction giants who, on our behalf, determine what infrastructure we need to provide that good debt to them. The proper role of the public purse. Wealth generating good debt. Showing, if more proof was needed, just how evil are those welfare bludgers, those abusing free health, expecting their taxes to provide basic services. On that scuttle, then, we, we hadn't realised welfare and health, for instance, were a debt. We, we thought they were why we raised taxes and the Medicare levy in the first place, that if they weren't raising enough, then just increase them. That is the sort of ignorant economic thinking that has created this problem in the first place. This crippling false sense of entitlement by large sections of the riffraff. The expectation that paying taxes somehow entitles the taxpayer to some sort of return like basic services. These people never consider that those basic services cost money and money doesn't just grow on trees. That's where good debt comes in by providing those taxes to the great corporate practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all who understand these things then we are using those taxes to grow the country to grow wealth good debt and we could provide even more good debt even more progress and wealth and jobs and growth if we didn't waste so much on bad debt at this point, I'd plan to ask Gullalim, as he searched for ways to cut debt slash government spending, whether he would seek savings through good debt or bad debt, but even I thought the question a, a touch unnecessary, because it gets even better. The good debt is so good it's not even a debt. So calling it a good debt seems to be a problem or an economic misnomer or something. Scuttle them and the team won't even have to count it as debt, thus helping fix up the deficit stroke surplus problem they believe they have. Even if the long-haired commie greeny lots reckon a surplus is just taxes they paid that haven't been spent on the services they were supposed to be spent on, showing how ignorant they are. When the wise now know those services only exacerbate bad debt. So all these big infrastructure projects proposed by the great corporates and funded by good debt won't even be debt, showing how qualified scuttle them is to be the big economic guru. And as the great corporate recipients of good debt, which isn't debt, generate more and more jobs and growth and wealth and productivity, the bludgers who lose their bad debt services will be better off anyway. Win-win. But Scuttled him, expanded his chest. The biggest good debt of all is the debt of gratitude the nation owes me. Good point. Good point. 
all explaining the common sense of the great corporates not wasting their hard-earned on crippling taxes, on inefficient government, when they get them back anyway as good debt. Much more sense to meet all our legal tax obligations, as they tell us, knowing if they squandered profits on tax, they would only be wasted on bad debt. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy and... You can catch Mr. Kevin Healy tomorrow morning, right where you are now, 3CR, with City Limits. On the 17th of April, Palestine Prisoners' Day, over 1,100 Palestinian prisoners committed to an open-ended hunger strike, a strike for dignity and freedom. Early this morning, I spoke with Yusuf Al-Rimawi, one of the presenters of the Palestine Remembered program here at 3CR, and I asked him first to reiterate why the prisoners are on hunger strike. Currently, there are more than 6,000 Palestinian prisoners inside Israeli jails. More than uh, 1,500 of them decided to go on an open hunger strike in protest of the inhumane Israeli treatment. Their demands are specific their demands uh, are, are limited and what they want is to be treated equally and in uh, i would say like the way they were treated previously and to have the right of education to have the right of uh, proper family visits and also to stop the systematic medical negligence that Israel is using to crush their determination. Briefly, the hunger strike is a protest to stop the inhumane treatment of Israel inside uh, the jails, and it's led by prisoner Marwan al-Barghouti, the member of the Central Committee of Fatah Party, and more than 1,500 prisoners have joined Marwan. And they're not just members of Fatah? No, not just members of Fatah. Basically, everybody, mostly Fatah, but there will be deep, um, uh, there are actually uh, prisoners from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine (PFLP), and there is from the Democratic Front uh, for the Liberation of Palestine (DFLP), and there are other parties, even uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad. We also have non-Palestinian prisoners from the Arab countries, from Lebanon, from Iraq and Syria. All of these political spectrum parties from Palestine and the Arab countries, all of them are represented in the uh, hunger strike. How difficult is it to get information about what's happening in the prison with these people? Israel is actually making it more and more difficult because you uh, don't know um, anything about them. Even their own lawyers they actually made it more and more restricted to see the, their uh, prisoners and therefore we don't know. Uh, what we know is the, the very little information that we know is that they are, Israel is punishing the Palestinian hunger strikers by either uh, solitary confinement or uh, having more and more uh, restriction uh, on, on them. So in general, we don't know anything about them, but what we know is that their determination and their, uh, their, their strength 
will not be broken. How many other hunger strikes have there been in Israeli prisons prior to this one? This year, uh, the Palestinians will go um, uh, under Israeli occupation for 50 years. And since 1967, there has been different... Uh, since 1967, Israel started its imprisonment policy, and we're talking about nearly 850,000 Palestinians who served in, uh, or, or were imprisoned at a stage. We're talking about 40% of the male population of the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and uh, Jerusalem. And therefore, over the 50 years, we've, we've had several hunger strikes, whether individual, mass, or total, from the 70s or 80s and 90s onwards. And only in the last few years, we had the longest hunger strike led by Samar al-Aysawi, Muhammad al-Qiyq, by Khadr Adnan, also group strike. So in every, uh, every time the Palestinians did a hunger strike, they actually ended up imposing their demands on Israel and achieving victory. Have people overseas been joining in this hunger strike? In fact, since the beginning of the hunger strike, which was on the 17th of April, the Palestine prisoners, uh, Palestinian Prisoners Day, we've seen really great momentum of uh, popular uh, support momentum in West Bank, uh, in Gaza, wherever the, there are Palestinians and also wherever there are solidarity groups. Uh, so um, uh, in Algeria in, and, and in West Bank, I know that uh, there are people who had joined the hunger strike in support. Uh, there are also students in uh, the UK who uh, joined the hunger strike. We in Australia, Fatah Group in Melbourne, Fatah Movement in Melbourne, started a series of uh, um, events in solidarity. Um, and we know that uh, there are people who have done symbolic uh, hunger strike one day per week until until they end their strike. And we also um, have organized a solidarity gathering on Sunday. It was attended by more than 100 people. There were three uh, Australian parliamentarians, uh, Senator Gavin Marshall from the Labour, Senator uh, Janet Rice from the Greens, and Member of Parliament of Thomas Town, Bronwyn Halfpenny, also representatives of uh, Arab organizations from the Future Movement in Lebanon, the Lebanese Future Movement, uh, attended uh, Aman Palestine, the Malaysian uh, advocacy group, attended tens of Palestinians and Australians. So we, we made our call and we joined. We supported their demand and we showed our solidarity here in Melbourne. So in general, the support is uh, on, on popular level is massive. And yes, there are some who actually joined the hunger strike. What came out of that Solidarity Day? What do you hope to achieve in the new future? We made it very clear that the Palestinian community in Melbourne, most of the Arab and Islamic community, hundreds of Australian solidarity activists, several members of parliament and senators, have 
totally supported the demands of the prisoners. And we called upon the Australian government to stop its double standards when it comes to Israel, because we know that Australian politicians rejected the negotiations between Australia and China of extradition over a human rights issue and over a high conviction rate. Uh, in China of 99%. Well, in Israel, it's higher than China. We're talking of a conviction rate of 99.74%, nearly 100% of conviction rate in Israel. But nevertheless, our government is fully supportive of Israel. And therefore, this is a clear case of double standards that we are against. So what came out of that is protest of the um, imbalance policy of our government. And also, we signed messages and we wrote messages of support and solidarity on greeting cards that we're going to send the, the families of the prisoners. We will, we will send them to Palestine uh, to support the uh, strength of the family of prisoners, hopefully. Or on that uh, day, we had the premiere screening of a short film uh, made especially for the event by uh, a Jerusalem journalist, Diala Jwehan, which is a collection of interviews from families of some of Jerusalem prisoners. Are you planning another Solidarity Day in the future? We are going to continue our solidarity events as long as the mass hunger strike is open and we will update our Facebook page that we created for that. Can I give the Facebook page? Yes, please. It is Australians for Palestinian Prisoners which is a group on Facebook that we post every activity and updates how we in Australia express our solidarity and support for the Palestinian prisoners. So it is again Australians for Palestinian prisoners. And another way to keep in touch is to listen to Palestine Remembered. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yes, listen to our show on 3CR, Palestine Remembered, Saturday, 9.30 in the morning. Thanks very much, Yusuf. Thanks for having me. And that is Yusuf. And his, as he said, Palestine Remembered, 9.30 each sun, Saturday morning, and must listen on 3CR. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Next, the impact of one man in a politically powerful position influencing the ability of another to attempt genocide. I think it is very important to appreciate that damage done by the former UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon, not only to a number of countries in the world, but in particular to the Tamil people in the north and the east, 
from where most of uh, refugees come. In the 70-year history of the United Nations, I don't think there's been a single Secretary General worse than Ban Ki-moon. The UN Office of Internal Oversight Services said that the UN Secretariat under Ban Ki-moon was, I quote, drifting into irrelevance. He had damaged the standing of the UN so much that Richard Govan, a UN expert at the European Council on Foreign Relations, believes that Antonio Guterres, who has succeeded Ban Ki-moon on the 1st of January, I quote, could give the UN the kick up the backside it needs, end of quote. The UN under him has become really a joke. Let me first outline for you and your listeners the role of the UN Secretary General. The UN Secretary General is the chief administrative officer and the head of the UN Secretariat with 50,000 international civil servants. He had the authority under Article 99 of the Charter to bring to the attention of the Security Council matters that not only threaten international peace and security, but he is expected to uphold the values of the UN and act on its moral authority. This is the last thing that Ban Ki-moon has done. Let me first tell you about this man. He was an unknown politician from South Korea. The question was how he was appointed as the UN Secretary General. And I'll tell you what he did. From January to 2004 to November 2006, he was Korea's Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade. In February 2006, he began to campaign for the office of the UN Secretary General uh, to replace Kofi Annan at the end of 2006. Initially, I think everybody in the know thought he was a long shot. The question is how he managed to get himself elected. What he did was for the next eight months, he used his position as Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade of the country to visit every country with a seat in the UN Security Council to ensure that they voted in support of him by signing trade deals and pledging aid to developing countries. No less a paper than the Washington Post claimed that rivals had privately grumbled that the Republic of Korea, which is the 11th largest economy, was wielding economic might to generate support for his candidacy. One way or the other, this unknown politician from South Korea received 14 favorable votes with one abstention, Japan. And later, even Japan supported him. Uh, the U.S. U.N. ambassador, John Bolton, said, we've got exactly what we asked for. So Ban Ki-moon was the U.S.'s man that they wanted elected. The international comments on Ban Ki-moon have been really damning. The most damning of these was article written by Joe Lauria, L-A-U-R-I-A, who is a veteran foreign affairs journalist based in the UN since 1990. And he wrote a scathing article, quote, Ban Ki-moon, Requiem for a UN Yes Man. He opened with, and I quote again, after 10 years of almost total obedience to Washington, Ban Ki-moon stepped down on Sunday, that's the 1st of January this year. 
leaving behind a sorry legacy that has undermined the UN's legitimacy. Loria has listed out a number of things that Ban Ki-moon has done to damage the UN's credibility. Unfortunately, he did not deal with one of the worst, and that is the killing, the slaughter that occurred in north and east of Sri Lanka. You see, the senior UN official in Sri Lanka is the resident coordinator. The Charles Petrie report, which was appointed by Ban Ki-moon, Charles Petrie is a, a British human rights activist, he wrote a scathing report about the deficiencies of the UN and Ban Ki-moon in particular. This was after his first four-year term. If he had any decency or integrity, he would have resigned after that report. Instead of which, he went on to apply for and get appointed to another four years, where he did exactly the same thing. Now, what is not known is that Ban Ki-moon had a friendship, is a word that has been used in the uh, Sri Lankan press, a friendship with the Sri Lankan dictator, Mr. Mahinda Rajapaksa the president, for many years. This was actually stated in the Sri Lankan press, although there was no direct evidence for it. Well, the evidence has been shown by the fact that Ban Ki-moon was very well aware of the massacre that was going to take place. He was specifically told by the UN office in Colombo to come down to Sri Lanka and try and stop the massacre. He did nothing of the sort, saying that he would come down only if he could do something to stop it. But he could. He was the UN Secretary General. He had the power. He had at least the power to take this to the UN Security Council, which he didn't do. I mean, he was aware that Sri Lanka was getting K-5 jets, multi-barrel rocket launchers, and God knows what. They were not getting it for fun. They were going to shell the civilians in the north and the east. Ban Ki-moon knew all that. He was told that by the UN office in Colombo. And what did he do? Nothing. He then appointed investigative team of three leading uh, uh, lawyers to look into what happened at the closing stages of the conflict. And this group of experts handed in a report to Mr. Ban Ki-moon. They were scathing. It was probably one of the most scathing reports I've read for a long time. And what did Ban Ki-moon do? Did he act? No. He put it on a shelf and did not act, and had not yet acted, even till the point of resignation. What I say is that Ban Ki-moon has a responsibility, and in fact he has a case to answer. He's already been charged, you know. Government of Haiti, this is an island in the Caribbean, has charged Ban Ki-moon for sending peacekeepers from Nepal, where cholera is rife, to Haiti. And there was a major outbreak of cholera in Haiti, a disease that had not been reported in living memory. It has wiped thousands and thousands of uh, people in Haiti. And the government of Haiti uh, filed action against Ban Ki-moon. The case was unfortunately heard in the United States. Unfortunate because the United States has an understanding that the UN cannot be charged. Had it been filed in some other country, such as uh, 
Belgium or Mauritius, uh, which I don't think held that part in their law, uh, Ban Ki-moon might well have had to pay compensation, or the UN would have had to. What then happened was that Ban Ki-moon appointed one of his senior consultants to look into the cholera epidemic in Haiti. I think uh, he was a, a very well-known diplomat. He stated that the UN had a case to answer. And finally, after really six years, Ban Ki-moon finally accepted that the UN had a responsibility and actually went to the extent of apologizing to the Haitian people in the United Nations. I think, as I said earlier, he is the most dreadful and irresponsible person ever to head the United Nations. He has done an enormous amount of damage. Where the Sri Lankan situation is concerned, I have written a paper on this, that the Sri Lankan uh, people in the north and the east, like the people in Haiti, should charge Ban Ki-moon and the United Nations for all the hundreds of thousands of kilometers in the Tamil North and the East that have been devastated by the bombing and uh, the nearly 70,000 Tamil civilians killed in this action. Thanks to human rights activist Dr. Brian Sinaratna. Sri Lankan Australian has been here for many, many years and has been fighting for the rights of the Tamil people even before he came to Australia. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Next, the second in a series of talks by Chris Gaffney on the 1917 revolution in Russia. Last week I dealt briefly with the 1905 revolution, which wasn't strong enough to remove the Tsar, and so the Tsarist government limped on until caught up in the World War in 1914. Lenin said this, For a revolution to take place, it's not enough that the lower orders do not want to live in the same old way. It's also necessary that the upper classes should be unable to live in the old way. By 1917, these conditions had been met in Russia. The Tsar had entered into a system of military alliances with the Democratic Republic government of the French Empire and the constitutional monarchy of the British Empire against the German and Austrian empires. Inevitably, this alliance and its counterpart on the German-Austrian-Turkish side led to war. The war that started in 1914, I'm quoting Lenin here, a bourgeois, imperialist and dynastic war, a struggle for Marxists and for freedom to beat foreign countries, a war to deceive, disunite and slaughter the working people of all countries by setting the wage slaves of one nation against those of another so as to benefit the capitalist bosses. That could be well applied to the war on terror today. But in the First World War, the lack of munitions, the small number of factories for their production... The sparseness of railway lines soon translated the backwardness of Russia into defeat 
about 15 million men were mobilised. And you should remember this when people get upset at the Tsar and the Tsarina being shot later on. 15 million men were mobilised. About 5.5 million were counted as killed, wounded or captured. Approximately 2.5 million were killed. 2.5 million people. In the cities, food shortages, shortages of clothing, of fuel, of all the necessities of life grew worse and worse for the poor. The rich, glutted with war profits, feasted, while cold, hungry workers slaved away for 10, 12 and 14 hours a day. In the factories and the army, the influence of the illegal socialist organisations, mainly the Bolsheviks, began to grow rapidly. February the 23rd, 1913, was International Women's Day. Now you'll say, oh no, it was March the 8th. The Russians were operating in a less modern calendar and so their dates were always... uh, It's confusing. They talk about the October Revolution even though it took place on November the 7th. And likewise, March the 8th then was February the 23rd. Well, that was International Women's Day. Trotsky writes, The social democratic circles had intended meeting, speeches, leaflets. It hadn't occurred to anybody that it might become the first day of the revolution. Not a single organisation called even for a strike on that day. The women demanded bread from the authorities, which was, quote, like demanding milk from a he-goat, wrote Trotsky. The Bolsheviks, expecting a quick defeat, reluctantly led the metal workers out on strike. On February the 23rd, more than 90,000 workers went on strike. There was no violence, because the Tsarist officials were frightened that the infantry wouldn't obey orders to shoot the workers. The soldiers were coming over to the workers and on the February the 29th, the Tsar abdicated. But who was in power? The workers of Petrograd, the soldiers of the garrison who'd made the revolution? A Petrograd Soviet of workers' deputy sprung up at once and soon workers' councils, Soviets and later peasant Soviets sprung up all over Russia. In the first day after the fall of the Tsar, effective power was in the hands of the Soviet. But the leadership of all the important Soviets was in the hands of the Mensheviks and representatives of the Peasant Party, the Social Revolutionaries. That's the name of the Peasant Party. For them, the object of the revolution was a democratic capitalist republic. Russia, they said, wasn't ready for socialism. As the workers' representatives were in fact in power, they've now got a hand power to the liberal representatives of capitalism. So a provisional government was patched together from members of the Duma, which was a fake parliament set up around 905. The bourgeois liberals, the Malcolm Turnbulls of their day, were concerned to restore order in the army and the factories and even restore the Tsar, though perhaps not the discredited Nicholas. They also stood for the continuation of the war as well as the submission of Poles, Finns, Bolts and Central Asian peoples to the rule of Mother Russia. There was talk of limited home rule for these people, but as with much of the provisional government's talk and that of its socialist supporters, the Mensheviks, it was a question of waiting for elections to a constituent assembly. When would it be elected? Uh, Later on. The Mensheviks increasingly adopted provisional government policies. Lenin and Trotsky were in exile, and Stalin was then the editor of Pravda. And Stalin wrote in March, quote, The Bolshevik attitude was, our slogan must be to bring pressure to bear on the provisional government in order to compel them to make peace, end of quote. Lenin rebuked this in his 
pamphlet Letters from Afar. To words that the government to conclude a democratic peace is like preaching virtue to brothel keepers. In April 1917, Lenin arrived in a SEAL train in Russia and in this speech he declared no support whatever to the provisional government. He argued at a Bolshevik conference held the next day for overthrowing the provisional government, all power to the Soviets, a revolutionary peace policy, socialist construction at home and international revolution abroad. Well, the majority of the Bolsheviks still had the old view that what the next stage would be, and the majority opposed Lenin, arguing for pressure on the provisional government to compel it to complete the bourgeois democratic revolution. Lenin said, do that, I'll leave the party, if my view is not supported. That won the day. But Lenin's views, we note, was a change from his earlier stance, and it was a move to views much nearer advanced to the views of Trotsky, who published a work called The Permanent Revolution. The question of every revolution is state power, but what developed in Russia after February 1917 was a situation of dual power. Alongside the provisional government, the government of the bourgeoisie, another government had risen, so far weak and insipient, but undoubtedly a government that actually exists and is growing, the Soviet of workers and soldiers' deputies. It's a revolutionary dictatorship, a power directly based on revolutionary seizure, on the direct initiative from the people below and not on a law enacted by a centralised state power. This power is of the same type as the Paris Commune, wrote Lenin. The Soviets were capable of running production, transport and communication and they represented the real power that could replace the entire capitalist state machinery. But they were dominated by the Mensheviks, read Social Democrats, who stood for a capitalist republic and whose policies would therefore mean eventually the end of the Soviets. The provisional government told the French and governments that it wouldn't make a separate peace with Germany, provoking mass demonstrations of more than 30,000 soldiers. Only the socialist leaders of the Soviet, the Mensheviks, were able to persuade the soldiers to disperse, and the government begged the Mensheviks and social revolutionary leaders to join the cabinet, as they had influence over the workers. This they did, and a social revolutionary, the social revolutionaries, the Peasants' Party, put up Kerensky as Minister of War, and he became the main driving force of the government. He launched a successful offensive against the Germans, but it was doomed. The miserable armies continued to starve and die while all over the country the railways were breaking down, food supplies were dwindling, factories closing, speculators flourishing as foodstuffs and fuel were secretly sent out of the country to Sweden. Give me an idea what the capitalist class thought. A prominent capitalist, Lyad Nozovov, said this, quote, Starvation and defeat may bring the Russian people to their senses. Revolution is a sickness. Sooner or later the foreign powers must intervene as one would intervene to cure a sick child. And it was people like this who fabricated evidence that Lenin and the Bolsheviks were in fact German agents. During June, although the Soviets still had Menshevik majorities, demonstrations in Petrograd carried predominantly Bolshevik slogans. By July, even more formidable demonstrations demanding all power to the Soviets led to a near insurrection in Petrograd. Well, the Bolsheviks tried to control this because they knew that even though they could win in Petrograd, Russia as a whole was not ready. This line was unpopular with many Bolshevik supporters, but once the insurrection actually began, it was the Bolsheviks who assumed the leadership. 
The uprising was put down, as the Bolsheviks knew it would be, and a certain demoralisation set in, and support for anarchist groups grew. The provisional government seized the opportunity, arrested Trotsky, while Lenin escaped to Finland. The government was again reorganised with a socialist minority, that is, Mensheviks and social revolutionaries, with Kerensky as Prime Minister. The effect was short-lived. Soldiers continued to desert and military advance turned into retreat. Peasants were actually seizing the land and the economic situation continued to deteriorate. By September, the power of the Soviets almost equaled that of the government. The Bolsheviks were now, by September, a majority in the Soviets and government decrees were often vetoed by the Soviets. A Tsarist officer, General Kornilov, proceeded to march on Petrograd with at least some of the provisional government ministers in league with him, and his promise was to kill every communist. Some Bolsheviks now said, let's support the Kerensky government against Kornilov. Lenin and Trotsky said, yes, we must certainly fight Kornilov, but it would be wrong to support Kerensky. Lenin's policy prevailed, and the Soviets marched against Kornilov with separate ideas and slogans, and when Kornilov was beaten, the Soviets were ready to challenge the government. The government then proposed, getting desperate I suppose, a democratic conference on October the 7th for the purpose of setting up a parliament. Now this was an attempt to reconcile the Soviets to its power, to the power of the government, which many Bolsheviks supported. They argued that the revolution should and must be led from the Soviets to the establishment of bourgeois parliaments and the participation of the parliament was necessary to complete the democratic capitalist revolution. The Bolsheviks, at Lenin's insistence, withdrew on October the 10th, 1917, and on October the 16th, the Soviets set up the Military Revolutionary Committee headed by Leon Trotsky, which became the organ of insurrection. There were rumours of another right-wing attempt at a coup. Soldiers and workers took over Petrograd on October the 25th, 1917, under the direction of Trotsky. Once the Military Revolutionary Committee had arrested the provisional government ministers and taken the Winter Palace, they handed government authority to the All-Russian Congress of Soviets, then meeting in Petrograd. The Menshevik members walked out, as did the right-wing social revolutionaries. That actual party actually split. The first Soviet government was set up by the Congress, which had a large Bolshevik majority. At the Congress, Lenin said... Within Russia, a huge section of peasantry have said that they have played long enough with the capitalists and will now march with the workers. The peasants will understand that the salvation of the peasantry lies only in an alliance with the workers. We shall institute genuine workers' control over production. We must now set about building a proletarian socialist state in Russia. And that was Chris Gaffney talking about the... Russian Revolution, and as you would realise, it's to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution in 1917. And there's more to come next week and probably the week after that as well. The Clock Tower Centre presents a definitive story from our neglected Indigenous history with Obidjeri Theatre Company's production of Corandirk based on the true story of the men and women of Corrandirk Aboriginal Reserve who went head-to-head with the Aboriginal Protection Board. This special production brings these voices from the past to life. For 
performing Wednesday the 24th of May at 8pm. Bookings and more information at clocktowercentre.com.au or call 92439191. That's 92439191. A 3CR supporter. A meeting of the Rotterdam Convention will take place in Geneva from the 8th to the 11th of May. The Convention is a multilateral treaty to promote shared responsibilities in relation to the importation of hazardous chemicals. It promotes open exchange of information and calls on exporters of hazardous chemicals to use proper labelling, including directions in safe handling, and inform purchasers of any known restrictions or bans. This year, as in previous years, restrictions in the trade of crystalline or white asbestos will be on the table and it is hoped that this year action will be taken. I'm speaking with Kate Lee, the CEO of Unionate Abroad, AFIDA, the global justice organisation of the Australian Union Movement. Kate, before we focus on the prospects for restriction of asbestos at the meeting in Geneva, could you give the names of the countries where AFIDA is working with workers and unionists to both educate and advocate for a ban on asbestos? Unionate Abroad has been working in four countries in our region and will likely expand that work over the coming year. But currently that work is in Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia and Indonesia. In particular, Indonesia and Vietnam have um, some of the largest imported raw asbestos quantities (laughs) coming into those countries um, in the region. They're two of the biggest um, importing countries. And yes, as you said, we're working with unions and community organisations around you know, advocacy, working towards a ban at country level, helping organise workers in asbestos factories, particularly in Indonesia, helping push back against the industry and the industry lobby, which is very active in our region, and also working across a range of government departments and with local communities and community groups in order to increase awareness and increase people's capacity to fight for a ban in their own country. If it's been imported, what does it look like? Because there are factories in, like you said, factories in Indonesia, they're processing it. What is, how does it come? What's the raw product? Well, the raw asbestos looks like sort of fine white fibres on the whole. Uh, Chrysotile is known as white asbestos also, and it's often bundled up or, or packaged into big blocks, I guess, but, you know, we've also seen you know, horrific photos of how that stuff, the raw asbestos, is stored in countries in Asia and ripped bags and ripped packaging with stuff leaking out and it's certainly not stored or transported in any way that would be considered safe in Australia. There are no warnings on the packaging? Oh yes, sometimes there are warnings, but it doesn't help much if the bag is ripped open or if it's certainly not stored or transported safely. What regulations are there in those countries that you've mentioned for the importing of asbestos? What's the rules? Well, there are very little regulation because people simply, there is such a low awareness 
even at a bureaucratic and government level about the dangers of asbestos. So regulation is often very low and management and handling therefore is, you know, the regulations around management and handling is, is very low. So people in Australia would be aware of what's required in terms of handling asbestos, a full suit um, with breathing apparatus, a specialist person to remove and remove and transport asbestos, regulations around the management and eventual you know burial or management of asbestos waste. You know, for mo- for the most part, none of that exists a- across most of Asia, particularly in poorer countries in the region. For example, if you can imagine in a roof tile factory in Vietnam, women there who are involved in the manufacture of roof tiles, you know, we've got photos of them wearing nothing more than a mask, um, a face mask and certainly not full breathing apparatus and no other protective clothing. And I'd imagine there's no health checks on people? This is something, again, where there's very low awareness. So there's only starting to have some more regulations around health checks. But even so, you know, some of this, um, you know, can be modified, particularly by companies who have an interest in continuing to manufacture asbestos products. We know that, for example, in an asbestos manufacturing plant in Indonesia, where we've been working with a local occupational health and safety organisation that works with the union organising asbestos workers, the workers there did have regular checks but they weren't comprehensive by our standards. And also there is a very low awareness even amongst the medical profession in many countries around asbestos-related disease and being able to identify that as a specific you know, disease that's related to asbestos and separate, for example, from other cancers. So the specialist knowledge just isn't there that enables proper comprehensive testing. There's an organisation in Australia linked to Sydney Uni and Concord Hospital in Sydney called the Asbestos Diseases Research Institute and we've helped over the last few years in linking up the specialist staff there to be able to provide specialist knowledge and testing capacity for the medical profession and others in a number of countries in Southeast Asia. Where is the asbestos coming from? Mostly um, asbestos is still mined in a small number of countries, Russia, Kazakhstan, Brazil, China, for example, are the biggest countries, the biggest um, mining, asbestos mining countries still. And China mostly mines and uses asbestos internally, um, whereas Russia, Kazakhstan, Brazil mine and export and Asia is certainly a big focus for their interest and a big focus for their exports. And as a result, they've also set up offices of their industry lobby groups right across Asia in order to do things like promote the use of asbestos to government and government officials, take government officials on, you know, well-paid study tours to uh, be able to effectively lobby them around things like, well, their argument is that there is such a thing as safe use as asbestos. But we know in Australia, and this is endorsed by the overwhelming number of scientific evidence, as well as by the World Health Organization, that there is no safe use of asbestos. But the industry lobby spends a fair amount of money 
you know, taking um, key government officials on um, study tours to their own mines and to other key centres in the region where they try and convince, you know, these people that asbestos can be used safely, that it's a cheap product that can be used to house, you know, the poor people of their countries and that really it's the ideal product for, in particular, roof roofing um, for poorer communities. Would another reason for the focus on Asia be lax laws or not? Yeah, most certainly. You know, there's just such a low, low awareness. In some countries, people don't even know the word asbestos. As hard as it is for us to imagine that in Australia, uh, there's incredibly low awareness. And so the role of local unions and community organisations in countries in Asia is incredibly important in terms of them being able to promote the deadly impacts of asbestos. Do you have any idea of the working conditions in the the exporting countries of the workers that are actually mining asbestos? Look, we've got some knowledge, but this is something that we want to better understand and do some more work on over the coming 12 months. Unfortunately, this myth that asbestos can be used safely is also propagated by the industry in the mining communities of Russia, for example, of which there are only a small number and they're often small towns heavily dependent on um, the asbestos mines. And there have been also a number of you know, serious attempts to establish, for example, trade unions in those organisations that also perpetuate the myth that asbestos can be used safely. You know, this is pretty tragic, really, but um, it's a reality, is that for many workers, they've been led to believe that asbestos can be used safely when the overwhelming evidence is that it cannot. Also, is this asbestos getting into Australia? I did hear a report by a CFMU official to say that on the building sites that they fear that asbestos is being used? Look, most certainly, and this has been a focus of a current Senate inquiry that's underway at the moment. There is no doubt that because of our own regulatory mechanisms at our borders, asbestos is still entering Australian shores, even though we banned the stuff in 2003. So it does enter the country in a whole range of products. Yes, building products, construction products, but right through to asbestos having been found in children's crayons a couple of years ago, made in China. Now, part of the problem is the extensive use now of asbestos in Asia. And that's why AFIDA has focused on our Asia region. And that is because many products, while they say made in China, actually have component parts of products that ultimately say made in China, uh, you know, subcontracted into other countries in Southeast Asia. Uh, China itself, of course, supports the ongoing use of asbestos, but they also rely on the fact that countries across South Asia and Southeast Asia have not yet on the whole banned it and allow the manufacture of asbestos. So subcomponents of products made in China are also made right across Asia and end up containing asbestos. And so ultimately without 
stronger and stricter regulation at our borders, products are still coming into Australia. And so that's of serious concern, of course, to many in Australia, in the union movement and beyond. And of course, the fight here has been a really long and hard one, but it's still happening. And just the fact that it takes so long to develop mesophilioma makes it harder for you to to fight against it, does it? Look, I think that is part of the problem. It's a bit like the impact of climate change. We all know it's coming, but for many of us who a little bit more removed from the immediate impacts and those of us in Australia are more removed than you know elsewhere in the world it's a problem that you know can that we can address later or it becomes something that we that we feel like we can address later it's a bit like bit the same with asbestos because the onset of asbestos related disease and of course you know exposure doesn't necessarily mean you do get a disease but the onset is delayed in some cases decades and so the impact is not directly felt perhaps for many years. But the overwhelming scientific evidence is absolutely clear. And of course and it's not just the workers themselves. They take the right. stuff home family with them. Family members, that's right, and communities who are exposed. And it's a well-known fact that people who take home asbestos fibres on their clothes from work expose their families in either people that wash their clothes or children that hug their parents when they return home from work any of those things can lead to exposure to asbestos one of the key people that will take the voice of victims of asbestos related disease to Geneva this week to the global meeting of the Rotterdam Convention his name is Rajendra he contracted asbestos related disease he and his mother did through his father's work in asbestos related uh, manufacturing in India so he is the victim of that secondary exposure and so he will be going to Geneva. Is it true that you only need to inhale one fibre? Look it's yes very minimal exposure but of course not everybody who inhales a fibre is necessarily guaranteed to come down or to contract an asbestos related disease. But the fibres are very small and, of course, it takes a very minimal exposure for someone to contract an asbestos-related disease if indeed they're susceptible to it. Tell us about this conference in Geneva. It's called the Rotterdam Agreement, is that correct? Uh, A global agreement that manages and regulates hazardous substances known as the Rotterdam Convention it sits along a number of other agreed, globally agreed conventions, but the Rotterdam Convention is the one that regulates asbestos use. And the countries that have agreed to participate as part of the Rotterdam Convention process meet every two years to agree on the listing of hazardous substances. Now, white asbestos or chrysotile, as it's sometimes known as well, has been put up for listing for at least 10 years. But because the voting process of the convention is by consensus, then all it takes is for one country to block agreement to list it and it doesn't proceed to the next stage. Listing a hazardous substance doesn't automatically equate to a global ban, but what it does is signal to the industry that the days are numbered for that industry, for that product. For example, in recent years, a small handful of countries led by Russia have 
continually blocked the listing of white asbestos and so it hasn't been able to take that step to move towards being uh, banned globally. So last year a group of 12 African nations decided this was enough. They were tired of this product being traded in its country and for it to have little impact about its this, the impact of this trade globally. So they have proposed that an amendment to the voting provisions, which means that if the group of 157 countries that attend this meeting in Geneva cannot reach agreement that the default position should be that 75% of people who agree to, or of countries that agree to the listing, should enable it to be listed. That group of African nations has put up that proposal. It's a very important development. Australia has supported that amendment. Some other countries have as well, but a number of countries are still undecided at this point. So the next two weeks are extremely important in terms of the activity at that meeting in Geneva and whether or not those of us who support the ultimate banning of asbestos can convince enough countries to support the listing of white asbestos. And what percentage have to agree to the amendment? 75% in order to trigger this. Are they hopeful? Look, it's a really difficult uphill challenge, but I'd say that this is the most coordinated we've ever been globally on this issue between the, uh, the global trade union movement and other anti-asbestos campaigners around the world. People are very, very determined this time to support this group of African nations who really want to see it, see it shift, that it just feels like there is no way in which this can ever be achieved otherwise. And we will be stuck with the hundreds and thousands of people who die every year around the world from asbestos-related disease unless something changes and people are simply saying enough is enough. Will Afida be represented there? Uh, yes, we will by our uh, campaign coordinator on asbestos-related diseases based in Hanoi, Philip Hazelton, and there are others going from the Australian Union movement, the AMWU and the CFMEU are also sending representatives and other unions from around the world will also be present together with others who care and have fought long and hard for the banning of asbestos. That's white asbestos. What about blue and is there a brown as well? Blue and brown asbestos have been agreed and have been banned globally for some years now. How did they get them through but they can't get the white through? The industry lobby has been really effective at cultivating this view that somehow white asbestos is different and safer. Now the scientific evidence is overwhelmingly the other way but of course they do have a handful of scientists who they roll out from time to time to say that you know white asbestos is safe. It's just come up against this continual block and the reality is that, as we know, there's a profit to be turned out of this and some countries and some in the industry are profiting and while they continue to profit, hundreds of thousands of people will continue to die. How long before there's a decision? What's the final date? So this meeting starts today and runs for um, nearly two weeks the crunch time around the debate around this amendment being put by the group of African nations and then the debate about the listing of chrysotile, the white asbestos, this happens from about May the 2nd. 
in the final days of the conference. So crunch time is next week. But of course, there's a lot of activity in the lead up to that. Okay, well, I might catch you later then and find out what happened. That's great. Thanks, Kate. And that was Kate Lee, the CEO of AFIDA, the ACTU trade union overseas aid organisation. And two weeks' time, I hope to speak to either Kate or someone else from AFIDA or who has actually been to the conference in Geneva to see what the result of the voting is. You're listening to 3CR. It's six minutes past five o'clock. Hey, farm. What's someone who studies things under the sea called? Uh, an undersea researcher? Wrong. If you reckon you can do better than farm at Trivia, join the Out of the Blue team for our annual Radiothon fundraiser, Wednesday the 10th of May at Highlander Bar, 6pm. And get your tickets via the Out of the Blue Facebook page or search Out of the Blue on eventbrite.com.au. On the line now is Bob Phelps from the Genetics Network. And first up, Bob, the Monsanto Tribunal. Well, the Monsanto Tribunal met in The Hague in order to examine the history, the century-long history of Monsanto's behaviour. Monsanto, of course, is a big agrochemical and seed company that has uh, behaved abominably over the last century, making Agent Orange, for instance, for the Vietnam War producing PCBs, uh, which have polluted the whole world. They're big time, of course, in genetically manipulated crops and also, of course, the glyphosate-based herbicide Roundup, which is the most used weed killer in the world, which has now been found to be a probable human carcinogen as, as well as being toxic in a number of other ways as well. Civil society groups got together and established the tribunal, which was only advisory. It didn't have the standing, unfortunately, of an international court. But nonetheless, it was thought to be appropriate that Monsanto's behaviour over all this time should be looked at. Of course, it was more general than that, too. It wasn't just the Monsanto company. We're in a position now where some mega companies are going to own basically the world's food supply through the ownership of seed and agrochemicals, machinery, fertilisers and a whole range of other inputs that uh, in particularly industrial farming depends on. And this is why we need to really examine how the world is fed and how we produce uh, fibres like cotton, trees and so on. See that we're falling into the hands of unscrupulous people even more than ever. And the plight of independent small farmers worldwide of whom there are in excess of 500 million is really dire. They're being marginalised, and yet they're the ones who are the um, base for feeding the world's people. Who were the judges and how were they chosen? Well, there were five judges. I'm not really sure how they were chosen, but they put up their hands as international law experts, put themselves out there publicly. Anybody who, of course, who, whether they're a scientist, a judge or somebody else of note who puts their head up above the parapet to oppose the activities of Monsanto and other companies like Bayer, uh, Syngenta, Dow and the rest of them are likely to have their heads blown off. So 
Uh, it really was rather brave of them, but there were um, five judges from different countries around the world who came together to listen to the evidence of 28 witnesses uh, who also were from various parts of the globe, but most importantly who had had direct experience and contact with the unlawful activities of agrochemical corporations over their lifetimes, people from Latin America in particular who are having their whole villages sprayed from the air uh, with chemicals in order to uh, kill coca plants or have their their crops um, sprayed. The health and environmental impacts are really very profound indeed. Six key questions, what did they find? Yes, the court was asked to consider really very big picture issues while looking at the on-the-ground evidence to consider for example, question one, did Monsanto violate the right to a safe, clean, healthy and sustainable environment as uh, international human rights law acknowledges? So they were working at that level with the international uh, rights laws and in the case of that particular question, the right to a safe, clean, healthy and sustainable environment, they said yes, undoubtedly Monsanto had infringed. Uh, again, uh, question two, did Monsanto violate the right to food as recognised in the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights? And again, the answer was yes. Three, did Monsanto violate the right to the highest attainable standard of health? Those rights are protected by the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights as well. Again, a verdict of yes on the basis of the evidence presented uh, by the witnesses. Uh, question four, did Monsanto violate the freedom indispensable for scientific research? And that again is guaranteed in international rights law. The answer again was yes. Uh, we see Monsanto over its century really subverting the scientific research uh, on which the safety of agrochemicals and other, th other um, activities in which they were engaged uh, were based, misusing the data from scientific research to justify claims that their products were safe, such as particularly the PCBs, which now are everywhere in the world, including Antarctica and the Arctic, even though they've, of course, never been used in those environments. Fifthly, was Monsanto complicit in the commission of war crimes? and that related specifically to the United States Army using Agent Orange in Vietnam in the 1960s. And I think that's indisputable. Yes, we see the evidence of that from the impacts on future generations in Vietnam where the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those who were exposed in the 1960s have horrendous birth defects and so on. And finally, could Monsanto's past and present activities be a, uh, constitute the crime of ecocide? So that's understood to be causing such serious damage or in, uh, destroying the environment to such an extent that humans uh, couldn't survive there. In that case, the law is still developing and is somewhat unclear, but the court's opinion was that there was a very strong case that it may be that the law has been infringed, but further work needs to be done on that particular point. It was pretty resounding. Monsanto had been invited to come to the tribunal and put their case 
in defence of what they have done over the last century. They wouldn't appear. Therefore, I think now, as the judges said, uh, they strongly were encouraging the legal community and civil society groups around the world to use their advisory opinion now to advance international law on human rights against the corporate rights. Of course, corporations have been given a huge number of rights, particularly in trade treaties and so on, over the last um, number of years. They are tending to overwhelm uh, the human rights picture, which we've just uh, alluded to. How can that happen? How can they get the upper hand? Well, you have things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, of course, being negotiated. For the moment, it's on hold because Trump said no. But the other countries are engaged in trying to renegotiate the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And in that agreement, among others, is so-called ISDS. It's um, the courts which are set up. It's dispute resolution courts, which are um, generally comprised, similar to the tribunal itself, of three international lawyers who will take a case where a company comes along and says, this government, for, for example, the Canadian government has been challenged under these provisions a number of times to say the Canadian government has made a law which is going to deny us the profits that we would have made if we were allowed to dam that river, chop down that forest, uh, or mine those minerals, and we want to be compensated uh, because they've made these laws which are against our interests, that the people who want to make a buck are going to... Um, be allowed to uh, get rich ahead of the interests of communities who are having their, in the case of uh, some native groups of people, having their whole environment on which they depend chopped down, particularly there's a case in Brazil at the moment to defend the uncontacted tribes of Brazil where uh, there have been groups of officials who have been in, uh, defending that situation and the new Brazilian government has just defunded that project so that these people will be absolutely vulnerable to the intrusions of foresters, farmers and miners and have no defence against them at all. Genocide is being committed there as we speak and it's uh, outrageous and indefensible. We're talking about Monsanto. That takeover, how does that impact if there was a case against Monsanto when it becomes a part of Bayer? any outstandings, and there are a number of cases against Monsanto, would be transferred to the new owners. I'm sure they'll try to wriggle out of them, of course, and say, oh, that's old history and we now own Monsanto. The takeover is costing Bayer $66 billion. And interestingly, at the annual general meeting, the uh, chief executive officer of Bayer did acknowledge that uh, it was a bit of a poison chalice taking over Monsanto. Uh, because of its poor reputation being regarded as the uh, most wicked company in the world and was saying that we have some serious work to do to recover the reputation. But um, Bayer is taking over Monsanto. It will probably be a done deal by the end of the year. Similarly, Dow and DuPont are getting together. They'll be another massive owner of seed and agrochemicals. And similarly, ChemChina, which is uh, one of the two mega-huge Chinese agrochemical companies is taking over the European company Syngenta. So we're going to have three mega, mega uh, companies controlling something like 70% of the global seed supply as well as agrochemicals. 
and there's a little outlier there, another major chemical company, BASF, will be the sort of fourth jockey on the block and likely to be taken over itself, I'd say, by one of the big three before very long. This is why things like these um, dispute resolution provisions, which are in these trade agreements, are so important. You imagine that a small government anywhere in the world, say Costa Rica, for instance, says, no, you can't come in here and chop down our forests. No, you can't mine for gold, as perhaps some previous government had, um, had agreed. And the company will then take them to one of these kangaroo courts and say, OK, guys, that'll be $100 billion for the lost income that we would have earned had we gone uh, forward with the project. We see a similar situation actually right in our neighbourhood with Freeport Mine in West Papua, where um, Rio Tinto and others are there, uh, providing something like a third of Indonesia's foreign exchange and, of course, committing genocide against um, local West Papuans as well without any uh, international recourse. And yet, if they were tossed out of the country, they would surely go to one of these international kangaroo courts and say to the Indo Indonesian government, OK, guys, we were going to make, <laughs> I mean, an unimaginable amount of profit out of that mine, and you're going to pay us. That's how it goes. And speaking about... China, Australian crops, is not approved in China, and there's a good reason why, isn't there? Well, it's interesting what's happening in China, yes. This year, most of Australia's cotton is going to be a new variety called Bolgard 3, which has got three genes to kill insects in it, and uh, it isn't yet approved in China. So the um, 400,000 tonnes of uh, cotton seed that... Uh, Australia expected to export to China for animal feed, not welcome there. And this is uh, reflected also in rejection of corn from the USA this year. The Chinese are getting pretty cranky. They're saying, we've got laws, we have a right to uh, assess and approve as safe any genetically manipulated foods that might come into our market. And uh, these things don't have approval. We're not going to accept them. This really reflects a huge Chinese shopper backlash that's been going on against all sorts of things now for several years. I don't know if you recall that um, some years ago, milk in China was doped with a, an industrial chemical called melamine, and uh, a large number of Chinese children, who of course, in the one-child family, were killed and permanently maimed. The melamine was a huge scandal and uh, some people did get executed and others hugely fined over that. Just a public health scandal of, of monumental proportions. But as a result of that, Chinese shoppers are now extremely risk-averse about the food supply in China. We see it's a similar response to mad cow disease and foot and mouth, which so turned the Europeans and British off accepting the government line on the safety of food as well. Now, a lot of our GM crops won't be welcome in China, which is a really good thing. We're glad that the Chinese government, which is now one of our major markets, is saying no loud and clear. And again, it's Monsanto that had reassured the farmers, oh yeah, everything's okay. Our new generation cotton is going to be uh, perfectly okay in the Chinese market, and it's not. And I think that there'll be... Um, some suing 
going on as a result of that. Farmers and grain traders are not going to take it, and certainly the Americans who have been um, badly burnt over, similar products being rejected, are going to have uh, Monsanto and Bayer in court. What are the concerns about the fact that Australian scientists have so-called cracked barley's genetic code? Well, that's to do with these uh, new so-called fantastic beer that's just uh, been done. They've, um, they've mapped the genome of uh, the uh, malting barley, which beer is made from. Some ridiculous claims have been made. They're claiming that uh, their fantastic um, new barley and uh, the beer that it's going to produce are, quote, a prerequisite for feeding the world in the future, close quote. I don't think so. Uh, unless everybody's going to uh, survive on beer after the food runs out. In any event, in the big build-up around this, which has happened over the last couple of weeks, uh, Murdoch University, the CSIRO, and the Grains Research and Development Corporation that uh, funded the research have, have been making these outrageous claims about feeding the world. Uh, the beer is going to be less fattening, healthier, Brewery filters are not going to get jammed as much as they do now, which is, of course, um, a production issue and uh, I'm sure a headache for them. Uh, They're going to create new markets and also, of course, adapt to climate change. You know, fantastic promises that will never really be fulfilled. I think they're looking for some more research and development money. That's what usually happens with these things, that uh, when they need a bit more cash in the kick... They uh, get out there, they spruik their new innovation, make ridiculous claims and hold their hand out for more taxpayer money. On the 22nd of April, people were on the move in many countries around the world and it was a march for science. So they were. The nerds were on the street demonstrating. Not just nerds, no. Science is important, of course. And there was a big community of young and old um, practicing scientists out there because of science like everybody else bench scientists scientists in the game are being squeezed in universities and research institutes and so on and of course trump who's pretty anti-science has just done a big job on them in the usa so that was the really the spur to get out there talk about these things but on the other side there wasn't too much evidence uh, among the signs and so on that there was any sense that groups like Science for the People or Scientists for Social Responsibility uh, were represented there. It was just about, we've got to have the money to do our work. And I think the values and the vision that underpin movements like Science for the People and Scientists for Social Responsibility really need to be much more upfront in science education, in science communication, because what's happened as we've seen, as we've just been discussing, the corporations are funding most of the world's science these days. Governments are sort of washing their hands of it. And as a result, science is being subverted to the corporate interest, and that's not in the public interest. I think we need to have a bit of rebalancing here, and where public money is being put in to the development of new technologies, new innovations in a whole raft of areas that can be uh, life-affirming and good for uh, future societies, then we need to be just keeping the uh, company's fingers out of the till and making sure 
that if they're putting money in, then it's on a fair basis and it's not ripping off the public purse. Are you also including in that companies' funding of universities? Well, yes, there's now, of course, the commercialisation and corporatisation of universities is going on a pace. People are starting to um, wake up and and talk about it, that uh, this influence, particularly on the enterprise of, of educating the next generation of students, is not going well. Standards are falling. Uh, students, of course, are having being asked to pay a lot more for their education and to pay it back earlier, as the government uh, announced just in the last day or so. And so uh, universities really are in strife. We need a thoroughgoing review of of their activities, what they're about, who they serve, and uh, what their priorities are. Certainly do, and that's Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network, and this is 3CR 526. Coming up soon, Trump in America and the reaction. Hey, farm. What's someone who studies things under the sea called? Uh, an undersea researcher? Wrong. If you reckon you can do better than farm at Trivia, join the Out of the Blue team for our annual Radiothon fundraiser, Wednesday the 10th of May at Highlander Bar, 6pm. And get your tickets via the Out of the Blue Facebook page or search Out of the Blue on eventbrite.com.au. We want to hear from you. Our station is all about serving the community and we want to know your thoughts, comments and ideas to help shape our future. We're currently asking listeners to take part in a short online survey that will help us get to know you better and understand what you want from your local radio service. The results of this survey will assist us in continuing to be the best possible station we can be in service of our local community. To have your voice heard, head to our website and fill out the survey. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash survey or call the station during business hours to organise to do the survey over the phone. Call 94198377. The fight back in the US against Trump is gaining momentum as the reality of his presidency takes hold in many aspects of society, both at home and abroad. One of those at the forefront of the struggles and resistance is Nancy Raiko Cato from the Bay Area Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women, who was in Australia for three weeks of meetings and information sharing. I spoke with Nancy yesterday. Nancy, racism is embedded in the US psychic, right back to the treatment of the Indigenous peoples when the colonisers arrived but the aspect of racism in your background particularly is personified by the treatment of your family during World War II. What's their story and that of many of their friends and family? During World War II the United States took a while to get involved and for my family uh, I'm third generation both my parents and uh, my siblings and I were born in the United States. My grandparents came from Japan. Part of the, the motivation for interning and imprisoning Japanese and Japanese Americans 
was the fact that uh, there was a growing success of Japanese farmers and Japanese-American farmers. And white business owners felt that threat that they were going to be, you know, there was competition. So one of the byproducts of imprisoning people was all the farmland and the, the property, because Japanese could not own property in the United States, basically was confiscated. Obviously, the other important reason why the government wanted and did, in fact, imprison Japanese Americans was because they needed a scapegoat. They found one in, in Japanese Americans. So by basically saying, okay, this whole group of people, you know, they're the enemy, that somehow locking people up made it okay and that sort of, you know, supposedly people's fears and whatnot. But really, you know, whole groups of people are not the enemy per se. So I think it was a very difficult time for all Japanese Americans. I mean, it's pretty horrific when you are one day just walking the streets and the next day you're, you know, on a train to some godforsaken place, a desert in the United States with no right to a trial, no, no particular claims against you individually and um, being locked up for three or four or five years, I think it was very difficult. And also, what it did do, though, I, I have to say, is that for most Japanese Americans, pretty much across, across the board, no matter what their politics, whenever the U.S. government says, we're going to lock up X group, you know, and say that they're the enemy, the Japanese American community will come out and take a stand. And I think that's if you can say something positive came out of the experience, that sense of we are not going to let this happen to anybody else, I would say would be one thing that did come out of it. So from my growing up, there was always that sense of justice, right? And you didn't want to see injustice be directed toward any any group of people or, or frankly, any, any individuals. Where were these godforsaken places that they were taken to and what were the conditions? Well, my mom was in Arkansas, which is kind of in the middle of the United States. They were away from the big cities. They were away from, you know, sort of the coasts. Most of them were like deserts, you know, horrible conditions where, you know, the wind blew through. They, when they first got there, many people who first arrived had to actually build the barracks um, made out of, you know, just pretty shoddy materials, little rooms that were just, you know, had blankets between rooms for families so there was no privacy. You know, culturally, that's very difficult for Japanese Americans or Japanese because, you know, they're very private. They're not used to living in those kinds of conditions, and it was, you know, a cultural assault on them as well. The food, again, you know, there's not culturally sensitive. Mass, you know, slop is what we call it, you know, where it's uh, mass-produced food. I think people were allowed to work, but again, they probably got really super low wages not because they were there. I mean, it really was a prison. You had no contact with people outside the, the camps themselves. Was there any education for the children? There was, but again, not quality education. And, uh, you know, the government probably, you know, didn't care if people were educated or not. My folks were um, college age, so they, you know, were going to college and or about ready to go to college and, you know, didn't have that opportunity because, you know, they were imprisoned. Well, come March 1946, they were released. Were they all released on a certain day or was it a stage thing? And, and what were the people supposed to do when they left? Yeah, uh, I think it did happen in, in stages. They weren't allowed to go back to the, to the West Coast, so they had to move 
to like the Midwest. So my folks ended up in Chicago and uh, basically kind of had to start all over again. So you move out of the camps, you go to a city where you don't know anybody. The racism that existed during the war didn't go away, right, just because, you know, the war was over. You know, they were still faced with that. You know, you had to learn a trade, you had to find a job. And then it was only, I'm not exactly sure how many years later that you were allowed to return back to the West Coast. But once you got back to the West Coast, there were incidences of how families would have had left their, their belongings in the um, Buddhist churches. Well, those Buddhist churches had been vandalized during the war, so they came back basically to nothing. People didn't own property, so again, they came back to nothing. And they were expected to start all over again. Was there any compensation for those four lost years? Many, many decades later, because of, I, think, I believe it was in the eight, 1980s, that there was a movement for redress and reparations for the Japanese Americans. And uh, I think actually interesting, uh, Ronald Reagan is the one who signed, President Ronald Reagan signed the apology. So they did get, I think each individual who were sent to camps were given $20,000. But again, that's not, you know, just compensation for years of their lives, plus all the property and and uh, other things that they lost and what they were forced to endure in terms of the, I think, psychological trauma as well. Well, as you said, hearing the stories of what happened to your family was eventually led you to become a political activist. What was your first activity? I grew up in the um, San Francisco Bay Area, so on some level I feel very fortunate that it was a racially, and it continues to be a racially diverse and more liberal place to grow up. So for Japanese Americans, the church, the Buddhist church was a very important institution, not exactly just for religious purposes, but really as a community hub for different activities. So I would be involved in like the basketball teams and uh, you had to go to church to play basketball. But we also did a lot of social justice things again. My mother was very involved just in community-oriented things. So And also during the time when I was growing up, there was actually a lot of community agencies and and groups that provided services to the Asian American community. So that's where I sort of got my first taste of um, organizing, particularly around racial justice issues. And what sort of work did you do when you finished college or university? I started out as um, as a, a secretary, and then now what I do is I schedule uh, classes for a a law school in in San Francisco. A lot of my um, love for puzzles and trying to figure things out, uh, which, and skills for doing that, I've been able to incorporate both in my paid job, but also in my organizing or the groups I belong to, Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party. So I think uh, being a Marxist has been very helpful in my my paid labor. You're talking about racism that your your family experienced and the racism that's still there in America today, especially for the black people in the, the South of America, and I'm sure it's still in the North as well. When did you first become involved in that aspect? I think probably when I was in college. I think, again, I was a, um, what we call an ethnic studies major, which is a, a discipline which looks at the oppression but also the contributions of the various different people of color uh, groupings in the United States. So 
having a sort of more broader view than just looking at Asian Americans, I think was very helpful. And then also, you know, having friends and colleagues and working with people in the movements who were of different races, you get a better sense and also understanding. And also having black coworkers too. You really just do see how racism plays itself out in different ways. For Asian Americans, it's, it's actually very specific. So we're painted as the what they say, the model minority, like the good minority, right? But um, really that could be very oppressive as well because we're supposedly given all the perks and whatnot, but then we're also very stereotyped as being very passive, so people can exploit us more because we're not going to supposedly speak back or, or organize against, you know, the bosses. But, uh, you know, I've seen way too many Asian Americans certainly buck that role, you know, because, again, like every stereotype. They're, they're stereotypes, and they're not necessarily true. And in fact, more often than not, are just used to harm the particular group they're going after, and as a way to shut people up. Just how widespread are the the white supremacist groups in the South, where particularly in the areas that you work in? They ebb and they and they grow. So right now, with Trump, you know, as the president and his you know hate rhetoric is certainly encouraging more uh, public demonstrations of, uh, you know, of the fascists coming out in the right wing and the racists. But that's always been there. It's not just because of Trump. I think it's because we live in a, in a world that needs racism in order to divide people. So what happens then is, oh, you know, this group, this oppressed group is the enemy, as opposed to, no, it's the government, it's the corporations who are really screwing us over. But you know, it's a very important feature, particularly of American capitalism, too. And I think that's one of the one of the issues that we are constantly dealing with in the movements to bring people together based on our class interests, but also to recognize that, you know, there is a stratification in the workforce because of race, also because of gender, also because of um, immigrant status, one's sexuality, political ideology. Those are all things that we are working to, you know, to say it's okay, we can have these differences, but we can also, more importantly, still work together. In, you know, 2017, what's been exciting this year is that people are really pissed off about what is going on. And I think there was perhaps a little bit too much optimism by some working people to think is, oh, if we just replace the leader, then, you know, everything is going to be better for us. And in fact, that's, you know, I think can be further from the truth because it's where the system is, not where the leader is. And capitalism is at its place in its historical development where it needs to continue to squeeze more than it is working people to try and achieve its, you know, lovely little goal of ever-expanding profits, which is an impossibility, frankly. You were in Washington to protest at his inauguration. Mm -hmm. What was that like? It was really kind of odd, to be perfectly honest. The Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women organized a um, socialist feminist contingent, and uh, it was a lot of security on the day of his inauguration. But on the other hand, I thought it would have been like, you know, super, really tons and hundreds of thousands of people. But we were walking along the streets, you know, sort of jumping from one sort of entry point into the inauguration route to to another. And it was 
it was actually fairly empty. So I don't know if folks here saw those photos that they had the day after the inauguration and comparing it to Obama's inauguration, but it really did. It really was empty. We were able to get into a point along the, the parade route. The one, there wasn't that many Trump supporters there. And then, you know, every once in a while, while people were waiting for his motorcade to come, you'd have some Trump supporter, you know, starting to chant USA, USA, and not that many people picked it up, which I thought was very interesting. And then we waited for his motorcade to go by, and we saw him, and then we just started chanting at him, you know. And he did hear us, which was great, and he saw us, which was great. So we actually had, you know, we felt that all those long hours of waiting was certainly, you know, uh, made it worthwhile to, to see the expression on his face. And then, of course, the next day was the Women's March, which was totally the opposite in the sense that there was, you know, literally millions of people on the street. Uh, you couldn't even move. It was that packed. Just the level of energy, the level of, yeah, we're pissed off at him, but we're also really pleased to be coming together, to be in opposition together against him and his policies and his sexism and, and all the other things that he putting out there. That was really very memorable as well. And I think the other thing I, I wanted to add is that throughout the whole United States, People were organizing women's marches in their cities, which I think is also probably equally important in that in the past it's been like, oh, we all have to go to the nation's capital to, you know, protest something. But people now are saying, no, we don't have to go. We don't have to go to the big cities to go protest something. We can actually, you know, organize within our own communities. And I think that's incredibly powerful as well, that people understand that they can make, you know, an impact and they need to make an impact in their own communities as well as reaching out to the other communities. You know, that they're not just limiting themselves to their own communities, but I think it also makes it more accessible if you can organize within your own community so, you know, people can go and don't have to have the added um, difficulty oftentimes of um, transportation and things like that. And how is that opposition expressing itself? It's now 100 days. We've been able to stop him from implementing certain things that he's really wanted. For instance, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. Now that was like top on his agenda and the Republican Party agendas. You know, they couldn't muster enough votes to to get that overturned. And, and people also, I think what the Republicans expose themselves is they don't really have a, they don't have an alternative. So people have benefited from having an Affordable Care Act. It certainly doesn't go far enough in terms of solving the problem of health care in the United States, but, you know, it was an, an important reform. We also have been able to put a stop or, uh, you know, we've challenged the travel ban where he was trying to ban people from predominantly Muslim countries from coming into the United States. So again, people took to the airports and literally shut down airports, which, as we know, is a big source also of, of revenue. So that was important. I mean, it's still being challenged, but at least it's not being enforced. People are understanding that we have to defend and do what we must in order to defend immigrants and undocumented workers here in the United States, because Trump and the right wing are going after them. So. I'm happy to say that uh, in addition to cities, you know, claiming themselves as sanctuary cities, which means that they will not use city funds to basically help enable the federal government to round up uh, undocumented folks.
What about women's rights? Women's rights are also, again, you know, we unfortunately got a uh, new Supreme Court judge who is totally, you know, anti-abortion, anti-women. That's going to be a problem. So, you know, hopefully the feminist movement will do more than just trying to raise money for itself, but really be bold and say we need to start organizing in the streets to win back the the gains that have been taken away from, from women. Again, that you know, we're, we're still having problems there, but women, again, are, are taking the lead, and you're seeing a lot more women taking the lead in initiative in, um, you know, organizing different things to in opposition to the misogyny that's being played out in not just in politics, but just through life. I think the other thing I wanted to say about sanctuary movement is that there have been some unions who have also taken a stand and said, we want to be a sanctuary union. And I think that's really a really important development because what it's saying is, yeah, this, uh, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise, but unions were supposed to defend each other. Uh, You know, today is, is May Day, right? It's an injury to one is an injury to all. And if any worker is allowed to, you know, be terrorized by the federal government because of, you know, whether or not they have papers, that's a threat to all workers. You know, if you can go after what they view as the weakest weakest link, then we're all, you know, ultimately going to be, you know, targeted and also be facing the same types of repression. In in the United States, tomorrow is our May Day, and it's going to be very interesting and also very exciting to see what the turnout is, because historically, May Day has not been the big holiday in the United States, but because there is, has been a call by some for a general strike in the United States and tying that with the rights of immigrants, it, I, I am very interested and also very excited and very hopeful that there, we're going to see very large turnouts, not only of, of immigrant workers, but also of working people in the U.S. generally. I'm going to be getting a report back from uh, the different branches in the Freedom Socialist Party to hear back, you know, firsthand what did they experience, what did they see, what's up next, because, again, it's a growing movement, a very, very uh, key one for stopping Trump and all his cronies and his friends. It's ironic, though, that it's reported that many of the, the working people actually voted for Trump because he promised that he'd bring back manufacturing, he'd bring back coal. I think that just goes to show you, it's like part of the, I think, American psyche is that we first try to get leaders to do stuff for us, and then when they don't, we get pissed off, and then we sort of take things into our own hands. So the American people are so frustrated, fed up, angry with, you know, the decline of of working and living and learning conditions that they wanted something different. You know, Trump was saying he would do something different. He was saying he was going to do these things. So I think on some level, people, some people gave him a chance. We also have to recognize that, like, a large proportion of the population did not vote in this election. And that, to me, is what they're saying, is, like, we don't have any faith in either, you know, Trump or, um, God, who was the other one? Hillary. <laughs> it's terrible. I can't even remember who the other candidate was. <laughs> Now, you know, it's orienting towards those people because it's like we want to win them over to say, okay, yeah, you gave Trump a a try. You're seeing right now he's not helping people out, nor was that never, that was never his intention. But come, join the revolutionary side. 
because that's the thing that's going to make the difference is like let's not depend on these capitalist politicians because they're not going to do our bidding we have to push them but they're ultimately they're they're not going to be the solution to our you know our woes and in fact they're the cause of it talk about the economic situation in the u.s at the moment i know that with the meltdown in 2008 Many people suffered greatly. Thousands and thousands lost their homes. Have people recovered from that, or is it still people right down the bottom? They haven't recovered. I mean, maybe the banks have recovered, right, because they got bailed out. But I live in San Francisco, which is one of the most expensive cities in the world, where people cannot afford to live in the city. I think they said, like, this was even just a couple years ago, that for a family of four to live in San Francisco, you had to have a joint income of like $100,000, which most people don't. I mean, I don't make $100,000. So it's very expensive. It's also very, what, what we're seeing in San Francisco in particular is it's, there's a tech boom, right? So Twitter is housed in San Francisco. And what happens is the city allows them a lot of tax breaks. So they're utilizing the roads, they're utilizing the infrastructure, but they're not paying for it. And, you know, they have a lot of young people who they're hiring at, at very good wages. And they're forcing people who used to live there out of their rental property because, you know, landlords can get two or three times more rent. Come to the point where I feel like it's not my city anymore, you know, and that's really a shame because of just the, the not, it's not just the demographics, it's sort of the sense of, you know, we were a city that was multicultural, that was diverse, that understood, you know, to a large degree, obviously there's, there's a spectrum, but you had a sense that, yeah, I want to live here because of, you know, all the different things that are happening here, which are, you know, positive. We're seeing more killings of young people of color by, by the police force. Instead of just de-escalating situations, they're just pulling, the, the, the police are pulling out their guns and shooting people. And they, why are these people tending to be women, young women of color, men of color, immigrants, right? That's like, what kind of city is that? What about the LGBTQ communities? Yeah, yeah. It's a spectrum, like every movement, every society. You know, trans kids have a really difficult time. I mean, at least in San Francisco, there are some services which is helpful, but, you know, there's backlashes against trans youth in particular and trans activists where, you know, I think there's some lip service being paid to say we have to be inclusive. But on the other hand, in terms of action and consistent action in support of the queer society and, and, um, or the queer movement and, and queers and, and trans, it, it, it varies for sure. Again, if we leave anybody behind... You know, we're leaving ourselves behind ultimately as well. So let's just raise from the bottom up and be inclusive. Because, again, the experiences of people, you know, like young trans youth are so important because they are feeling the brunt of what capitalism is doing. And they have some important ideas and they have a sense of urgency, which is something we all need to have in these times. Finally, just talk for a few more minutes about the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women and, and their place in all of this. For the Freedom Socialist Party is a revolutionary feminist, you know, vanguard party. I think we are really in an excellent position in history to say, okay, capitalism, people know capitalism doesn't work. They're just kind of needing more confidence in what could work or what, what, what are good ideas. 
So we're seeing a lot of interest, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of curiosity, a lot of you know people coming who want to join, who want to know more about socialism. The fact that we are both feminist and anti-racist for queer equality, as well as being socialist, is is also very attractive. And because it's what people are looking for, they're saying, how do how do I bring all these parts of myself together into one organization? I think that's um, an important aspect that we bring to the movement. I think the other thing is the fact that we have longevity is also means something. The Freedom Socialist Party just celebrated its 50th anniversary last year, so 50 years of revolutionary politics and being tested and, you know, coming through the fire and uh, still having the optimism and the confidence and the knowledge and experience to build those united fronts which are so necessary to have working people get the confidence of taking on the capitalist class is is so important. And then our sister organization, Radical Women, is such a also an important vehicle for women in particular to learn leadership skills, to understand, you know, how do we, you know, take on these misogynists of the world, you know, whether it's standing up for our rights to control what we do with our own bodies, to, you know, not being harassed at work and or sexually, you know, abused at work. I was just reading an article in one of your papers here about the hospitality industry here, and I'm sure it's true in the United States, where young women are, you know, just, well, they're treated as items, they're treated as, you know, things, you know, sex toys, whatnot, and that, you know, these are people's working conditions that, uh, again, you know, these women are angry as well they should be, and finding a vehicle, finding a place where they can, uh, learn to organize or take their organizing skills and, and, and go even further. Uh, Radical Women is, is an organization which I think helps women realize their leadership potential. Happy May Day, and you might get an, two May Days. You'll have another one tomorrow. Thank you. And that was me speaking yesterday with Nancy Raiko Cato from the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women in San Francisco. And you'll have two opportunities still to speak with and listen to Nancy. One is on Saturday at 4pm at 580 Sydney Road, Brunswick. The topic is Living the Resistance in Trump's America. So that's Saturday the 6th, 380 Sydney Road, Brunswick. And that's organised by the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women. And then on Tuesday the 9th, Fighting the Rights in the Age of Trump, hosted by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, and that's 6.30 at Trades Hall on meeting room number one. So that's Tuesday the 9th, and that's um, 6.30 at Trades Hall, meeting room one to listen to and meet Nancy Ryko Cato. That's all for me. I'll be back next Tuesday at four o'clock. Bye for now.